Friends, as you make your way back to your seat, I just want to begin our message today. We're taking a bit of a break from the, uh, the exegetical look at the letters of the Apostle Peter. Because, you know, Peter had an important woman in his life. He had a wife, Scripture tells us. She traveled with him in ministry occasions. The Apostle Paul refers to them. But we also know he had a mother-in-law that Jesus healed and that she ministered to Jesus and the Apostles. And we know that Peter and his brother Andrew, they had a mother as well. Mother and father Zebedee who molded them. Peter's mother is one of those who's listed among the women from Galilee who followed Jesus, not only in their heart but with her feet and as jesus and the apostles would go on ministry trips mission trips these women would follow behind and uh at the end of a long ministry day uh, when the when the uh, work was done the campfire was set everything was put in order and these women saw to all of the needs and details and kept you could just imagine and many of them are the mothers of the apostles how they kept that group organized and uh i just uh i just can't wait to meet these dear women someday. Many of us uh, on Mother's Day, we like to refer to our own experience because our parents, their fingerprints are all over our hearts and our lives. Uh, A couple years ago, we were visiting in Texas and we had, as many of you do, boxes of slides. Do you remember when we had slide projectors and we took pictures and we didn't get the pictures printed? They were on these little bitty slides and we never looked at them. They stayed in these boxes because the bulb was burned out on the slide projector or we lost it. And so we took these boxes and ran them through a computer scanner and they came out pictures that we hadn't seen for years. And it was so, so interesting. One of the pictures I want to show you uh, this morning is uh, my mom, our family. Uh, If you can throw that up there. There we are. And it's in color. Boy, that's amazing. There is a happy family. This is a family that, for all intents and purposes, probably should never have existed or lasted or all of those things. There's my mom. In that picture, my mom, Marilyn K. Powell, my mom's only about 20 years old. About 20 years old. And uh, there she is with my dad, you know, what you don't realize, my dad, he's tired. If I, I zoomed in because I didn't want to embarrass him down in Texas because his clothes are covered either in paint or plaster. I'm not sure what they are, but he is tired and he's had a long day. I can tell he's tired. His eyes are burning. My older brother, Mike, is sitting on his lap and he is tired too or bored. I don't know what. And there's my mom with a beautiful smile on her face. This family is fairly new family. Because my mom and dad met, believe it or not, on a blind date. Now, as a pastor, they did everything wrong. I don't recommend a single thing that my family did in coming together. They were on a blind date. And my mom and, my, uh, and her cousin went on a blind date with my dad and one of his cousins. And he said, Harvey, come along. I shouldn't tell you my dad, Jim's first name is Harvey. Harvey James, come along. He says, I got these two girl cousins and I need one to come with. Well, my dad said one of those girl cousins, not their own cousins. We're, we're Southern, but we're not that Southern. <laughs> he says, one of those girl cousins, dad said she was just drop dead gorgeous. And the other one, not so much. And so, so my dad said his cousin who'd made the blind date obviously had the better looking of those lady cousins. My dad says by the end of the night, he had switched dates on his cousin. And my dad was on a three-day pass from the military. He went AWOL 
and kept dating her. Ten days later, my dad and a young single mom were married. Ten days. Well, over 50 years later, this family had such laughter and joy. And there's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren from that. And how did it last when they did everything wrong? Well, they loved one another and they loved the Lord. And that made all the difference. Look at that family. I didn't really mean it to look that way, but you notice me in the picture? I'm glowing. It's almost like a holy aura is emanating from me. You know God has something special for that beautiful baby. <laughs> Most of you look at that beautiful baby and say, what went wrong? You know, <laughs> Okay, well, that's my mom. And I just want to thank God for her and my dad. Godly parents who left their marks on our hearts. I love scripture that speaks of Jesus and his relationship with his family, that fractious, difficult relationship with his brothers, that loving relationship with his parents, parents who were so concerned for him when he went AWOL and went missing after a trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. One of my favorite passages in referencing Jesus and his mother Mary is found in the Gospel of John chapter 2. It's the story of Jesus' first miracle. If you have your Bible, open it with me to John chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus and his apostles, he's called followers. He's a new teacher. You didn't become a teacher until you were 30 years old. You became, in Jewish culture in the first century, you became liable for following the law, men and women, when you're 12 years old. You're old enough to understand God's law and to follow it. But you couldn't speak or publicly teach God's law until you were 30 years old. You become a teacher of the Word of God. And Jesus as a rabbi now has followers, he and his followers have been invited to a wedding celebration in Cana, which is very near to his hometown of Nazareth. His mom is either involved, perhaps hosting, maybe it's someone in the extended family. We don't know all the details, but these wedding feasts were important that young couples got off on the right foot and were good hosts to all of their guests. And they often went multiple days, which put a financial strain, of course, on the young couple. We read in verse one of chapter two of the gospel of John, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is a disaster for the wedding feast. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know how the story continues. Jesus turned six large stone jars that were used for water, for cleansing, washing hands, ceremonial cleansing of all of those many, many guests. Jesus turned them not only to wine, but the finest vintage that anyone had ever tasted, which saved the, uh, the young couple from public shame and embarrassment but we see in this passage, interesting, adult to adult, Jesus and his mother. His mother 
first involving Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not here to, uh, to promote myself, my time. And this is the first time in the Gospels Jesus says he has an hour, which we know will be Good Friday and Easter morning. He says, I'm not yet ready to reveal myself. And she says, do whatever he says. It's a wonderful little vignette, a little glimpse into the love and respect and care. Now, it didn't seem so loving and respectful when I was a boy and we read everything from the old translation from the 1600s, the King James translation, the wonderful, beautiful, poetic translation. When the King James was translated into the English language, one of the first full English translations following Tyndale and the Bible of the Church of England under Henry VIII, well, many of the translators, this is the time of Shakespeare, and their language is beautiful to our ears. But the translation of this passage seemed very, almost harsh. Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Like, I don't have anything to do with you. Leave me alone. It almost sounds like he's rebuffing his mother. But the NIV, I think, gets a little closer to it because the phrase, the word for woman that he uses for his mother is the basic word for a married woman, a respectful term for her. The word in Greek is gunai, which we get uh, gyno means woman in English, gynecology, women's health. All of that comes from this word, but it's said in respect. Dear woman, dear woman, why are you involving me? Jesus is asking her because she has an inclination of his timeline and yet she's putting the needs of this couple ahead. And Jesus says, why are you involving me? Though he goes ahead and he does help the young couple, but the only people who knew about it were the servants who drew the water and knew those jars contained water, not the amazing vintage of wine that came out of them. Dear woman. That's what Jesus referred to her as. Dear woman. Didn't call her mom. Called her dear woman. And this morning we're going to look at a number of passages that reference Jesus and his relationship to his mom. Jesus' parents, have you thought about it? They were chosen by God. They're not perfect people. She's not the queen of heaven. She's not a demigod, not an intercessor that we pray to. She and Joseph were chosen by God to love, to protect, to care for, and to raise up Jesus in his earthly life. We have so much to learn from them and with them, what it means to love and to be parents, to be godly parents. Because friends, God has chosen you. If you are a mom or a dad, grandfather or grandmother, God has chosen you for that role. And we want to be godly parents, godly grandparents, Godward, pointed toward God so we can live a life that will point our children and grandchildren toward God as well. Well, the first thing we want to look at this morning is that godly parents, they serve as sacrificial stewards. Sacrificial stewards. Ask any mother or dad of a newborn. First thing you sacrifice is sleep. Uh, so many things. And that's just the beginning of that amazing journey of being a parent. You sacrifice independence. 
job opportunities, so many things. They've done many studies over the years. It used to be when I was a boy, they'd say to raise a child to college costs a hundred thousand dollars. Well, today you'd say, well, I could buy a pickup that costs more than that. Well, the money's gone way up. It's, it's really changed. It is not a cheap thing to raise up children. But the financial aspect doesn't begin to touch on the emotional, spiritual, physical toll that kids can take on our lives. There is a sacrificial aspect to it. But we do it because we love them. Because God has gifted them to us. It's important to remember that these children are a gift to us from God. One of the things that God did in the Old Testament, remember, He instituted that tradition following the Exodus that the firstborn of every family, especially firstborn males, and it was done as a reminder that all children are a gift from God, that the first one belongs to God. And you can give them into God's service to serve at the Levitical troop and so forth. But... The average person then would take that child to the temple or to the tent of meeting and they would sacrificially pay a price to redeem that child back to allow God's service and ministry to continue. But the point was always the children are God's. We are merely the stewards. They are not our property to dispose of as we see fit. They're God's children. And we're the stewards to care for them. In Luke chapter 2, we see that ancient tradition in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. It says, When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Well, that's focusing on that part of the ancient ceremony that only the very poorest of families took advantage of. Most of them, it would be a large animal, a very costly sacrifice, but for the very poorest, God made provision. For the very poor, just two small birds were the sacrifice. And with that small sacrifice, Joseph and Mary, doing the best they could, recognized that this child, as no other child before had been, truly was a gift from God. And we moms and dads, Moms on Mother's Day, they recognize as hard as it is, as much as we sacrifice, we do it because they're God's gift to us. Now, I've learned years ago, don't focus too much on Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 virtuous woman on Mother's Day, because she sets the bar so high that we all fall short in comparison to her. And there's a reason for that. Proverbs 31 is the idealized woman, the virtuous woman. All of the best aspects from human moms and wives are taken and put together in this one woman. She has no failings because she's an idealized goal. There's aspects that each mom and parent uh, will seem like her and resemble her in some ways, but certainly not in all the ways. But you see that her heart is intent not on herself, but on others. She serves others and puts them first sacrificially. 
We're told that she gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. It goes on and on. That all of the work she does is for her husband and children. Not for herself. Though I'm sure she takes great satisfaction in seeing them. Not only seeing them succeed in life, but even that they're turned out well. That they look so nice when they go out because she's taking care of everything at home for them. When I scan those pictures in, I should have put some of the Easter pictures in of my siblings and myself in our little Easter suits squinting into the sun. I don't know if cameras were different in those days, but do you guys remember, those of us a little bit older, they always made you stand outside and look directly into the sun for a picture? So there's not a picture of a single one of us smiling with our eyes open. We're all squinting and blocking our eyes like that. But that's how we took pictures in those days. Very different from the wonderful pictures you get from your cameras today. But this woman, she serves others and puts them first. Well, Jesus had mother and father who did that as well. Godly parents serve as sacrificial stewards. Not only that, but they grow faith. And they do it in a number of ways. They seek to strengthen and to fortify the childlike, innocent faith of their children. Godly parents fortify faith. Children have such open hearts to God. Have you ever noticed that? Those of you who've been in children's ministry in your lives, child evangelism, fellowship, and so forth, you know that you don't have to argue a child that there's a God who loves them. You don't have to be a skilled apologist to meet their skepticism and arguments. Children, they understand that there's a God who loves them. They understand that because they have parents who reflect God, just as our video did this morning. Mothers are a reflection of God's love. And so we seek to take that childlike faith and to strengthen it and to fortify it. We do it in a couple of ways. One of them is by our actions. We live a life that reflects our faith in God. Back to Luke chapter 2, a little bit later, Jesus is now 12. The, the, the story of Jesus going to the temple when he's 12 years old and staying behind that story begins this way. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. That's how the story begins. This is a family that was rigorous in following God's dictates for their life. They didn't say the expense is too great. The time away from work is too much. Our health isn't great. We have to walk to Jerusalem. It's a long ways, multiple days journey. Let's just skip it this year. Let's stay home, binge watch something on Netflix. Let's, let's just, maybe we'll go skiing. Mount Hermon is just north and the snow is always on there all year round. Let's do something different. Well, what do we teach our kids? You know, we all do it differently. And I know time is limited when the kids are young and you have them at home. I had a family that I still love dearly from my first church as a solo pastorate. And they disappeared every winter. They just disappeared. And you know, winter is when we get serious about teaching and all of the church ministries and everything. And they said, well, it's because our kids, they're only home for a little while. And we want them to have great memories of us. And so we go skiing every weekend instead of going to church. 
Well, that taught a lesson too. That was not just teaching from Sunday school. That taught an important lesson by the parents' actions, by their what was important to them. Godly parents seek to fortify faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, of course, is the touchstone passage for that, that not only should our actions, but our words should back them up at home. God should be part of who we are, our friend that we speak of. I'll begin a little earlier in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. They need to be part of our life. Our conversation with and about God, our actions, our words, our attitudes, those show the direction of our life. And that direction we seek to pass on to our kids to set them on a healthy direction in their faith toward God. Of course, there's no more important passage of that than uh, the reminder in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. We're reminded to train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Much of the teaching you do with your children, you grow them and strengthen them mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You're setting a direction for their lives that will last. They won't go off course or turn aside. And we know even the best parents sometimes have children that make decisions that are hurtful to themselves as they walk their own path but we seek to set them on a healthy path. Godly parents, they recognize that life has seasons. And the children you have today are going to be the young adults in your life tomorrow. And your relation to them, your relationship has to change. You move from being the caregiver to the encourager to the coach we change throughout lives, but we need to extend acceptance to them as adults. And I think we were seeing that as Mary deferred to Jesus, as she told the people, do what he tells you. Jesus was accepted not only as an adult, but he was given authority in that position as well. That's not always the case in Jesus' relationship with his family. I don't know why it's the case. I can speculate, but that doesn't always help. Why did Jesus' brothers, whom I believe were his younger brothers, the natural-born children of Mary and Joseph, why did they not believe in Jesus until he appeared to them following his resurrection? Scripture's clear on that, that he appeared to those like his brother James, who eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the author of the book of James. But during Jesus' public ministry, they weren't his followers. They didn't believe in him. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind. Obviously, Mary did not have the right words to communicate to Jesus' younger siblings what was different about their older brother, Yeshua. What was different about him? That God was his father. That he had a destiny and a mission in life. That obviously wasn't clearly communicated. And so we see a passage, a very honest passage in Scripture. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus, his popularity was booming. He was surrounded by crowds, but the religious 
the religious people were starting to mobilize against him because he he was very outspoken against some of their actions. We read in Mark chapter 3, for instance, in verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And when they show up a few verses later, ten verses later, it's his brothers and his mother Mary who are leading the charge. They, because they think their brother's lost his mind and is going to get himself killed, fall afoul of the Romans or the Pharisees. And Mary, you moms understand it well. Mary is just worried for her boy. He's going to get himself in so much trouble. And so she's going to get him out of there and to keep him safe. But when they arrive, Jesus shows that he is fully independent now as an adult. Then it says in verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, is my brother and sister and mother. He says God's family is his family. And in this case, his own family wasn't acting in regard to that. It's difficult to let them go and to walk their own path. But we need to, for them to be healthy as adults, not only to allow them to launch, to graduate, not only from school, but from family life into adulthood, but to celebrate it and to resource them and to encourage them. Life is good when that happens. Nothing gives you such a, a grateful heart as seeing your adult children do well in life, find a life partner, live a life that's pleasing to God, raise up children themselves, because now they understand. <laughs> now they know how hard it was on you. Oh, children are God's revenge, isn't it? You know, He allows that to happen. All that those kids you did for them, now they understand and they get to do for their children. It's a precious thing. Finally, though, the time comes in life, and Ken has reflected on it too this morning, is that godly parents, eventually we need to concede to being cared for by our own children. Concede to care. Those hands of yours that were once strong and held that tiny little baby's hand and you were amazed at those perfectly formed little fingernails, so tender and precious. Well, over time, those are adult hands and your hand that was once strong and firm is now thin and the, paper, the, the, the skin becomes like parchment paper and we can see every vein through it and we say, what happened? Life is like that. There are seasons in it. And eventually the season comes where we who were the caregivers now need to receive care ourselves. And brothers and sisters, if you're arriving there, you have my, you have my prayers and support because it is not easy. It is not easy. It's difficult to receive. It's easier to give care to the kids. But when the time comes for them to make decisions for us, I always pray trust and pray that I will be gracious 
and make that easy on my own kids. Jesus dying on the cross at about 33 years old, He did not live on the earth to make those decisions for His mother, though He made allowance for her from the cross. We know that passage very well. In John chapter 19, as Jesus Himself hung on the cross, He made allowance for the care of His mother Mary. It says in verse 25, Near the cross of Jesus stood His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, John's reference to himself, he said to his mother, Dear woman, it's the same word he used in John chapter 2. Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home into His very home. Not the care of Jesus' unbelieving siblings, though they came to faith eventually and did great things for the kingdom of God. But Jesus put His mother into care and she accepted it. She accepted it. would have been easy just to brush it off and say, yeah, well, you know, He had a lot of things on His mind there on the cross. I, you know. And how often we have our excuses not to allow others to care for us. Part of it, we just don't want to give up. We don't want to give in. We don't want to admit that that time has come. And part of it, it's our human independence. Even our human pride holds us back. But it's a blessing when our children are able to give the care that they have received from us. Don't short-circuit that. Allow them to do it. Proverbs 23, verse 22 is a verse that they are taking to heart when they do that. Listen to your Father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. The word there for despise is not just to look down your nose at her, but it's to ignore her, to neglect her, to not care about her, to forget her. Never do that for your aged parents. Love them and care for them. Don't disregard them and don't neglect them. Because we often think about it when we're in the prime of life that it's for caring for our children. But I believe a passage like 1 Timothy 5.8 speaks just as clearly for the care of those who are older among us. As the Apostle Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Care for your family. They're God's gift to you and you're a steward of them. Just as your parents were stewards of you as a child, in time, you may have the blessing if they live long enough to be a steward and give care for your mom and dad. Well, Jesus did all of this for His mother. And we're called to do it for our mothers today as well. Because we celebrate them. One of the wonderful things about Proverbs chapter 31 is it ends with this. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women do noble things. But you... You surpass them all. 
We'll close in prayer now. And moms, grandmas, there's a special treat waiting for you in the foyer. Hope you pick it up today. Let's close our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are such blessed people. And Lord, we are often, if we take time and think about it, we're blessed by those who you've brought into our lives, those who cross our paths. But there's a group of people that you have chosen to leave their fingerprints on our minds and hearts. And that's our mothers and fathers, parents chosen by you. And Lord, none of them are perfect, but Lord, they loved us and did the best bias that they could. And we are grateful for that. And now, Lord, we rise up like the children in Proverbs 31 and we call our mothers blessed. You bless them that they could be a blessing for us. And Lord, may that, may those generations of blessing continue in our church family, in our earthly families. And Lord, may Mother's Day not be a day in May on the calendar to buy a card, but Lord, may it be an attitude of our hearts as we give thanks for godly parents. Or Lord, if we're blessed to be in that season, that we trust you every day to be the parents that you chose for our children. Lord, for all of these things and all of these precious people, we give you thanks. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.